Hello, welcome to the self-learning podcast by Dr. Shushma Singh. Let us start discussion on Unit 7, Positivism and its Critic. And our topic is Critics of Positivism. Yes, in the French sociological tradition, you saw the evolution and the consolidation of positivism. But then it reached the other parts of the world and became a powerful sociological method. Positivism had its appeal. It sought to give a scientific status to the discipline. The search for precision, objectivity, casualty and value neutrality made it acceptable. This positivist social science found its logical culmination in the cult of numbers, in the mathematization of social phenomena, in the urge to reduce qualitative human experiences into quantified statistical figures, and it has also its remarkable achievements. But then you can guess that not everyone can feel comfortable with the positivism. First, it is possible to say that what is applicable in the domain of nature is not necessarily applicable in the domain of human society. Because unlike nature, society consists of self-reflexive essence who think, argue, contest and through their practices and actions transform the world. Hence, society cannot be subject to abstract or universal generalization. Positivism, it is alleged, undermines the creativity, reflectivity and agency of social actors. As you have already learnt in previous unit, Interpretative sociology was a refreshing departure from the positivist tradition. Second, it can also be argued that so-called ethical neutrality of the positivism reduces it to a mere technique separated from the moral or political issues. And paradoxically, it is precisely the politics of positivism, the establishment to legitimize itself often uses its scientific nature. In other words, positivism can prove to be pro-establishment status quest, non-critical and non-reflexive. In the 20th century, this critic of the positivism came rather sharply from critical theorists or the adherents of the Frankfurt School Marxism. What is asserted is that science has lost its administratory power. Instead, science itself has been become an integral component of the establishment. In fact, the experience of war, large-scale violence, the growth of fascism, the spread of the cultural industry and the emergence of the authoritarian personality. In other words, the darkness of the 20th century led these thinkers to speak of the dialectic 
of enlightenment. No wonder from the Adorno to Horkheimer to Marcus, the central thrust of these arguments was that positivist science was nothing but a form of instrumental rationality leading to domination and manipulation of human and natural resources. They critiqued this instrumental rationality and pleaded for a more critical, reflexive, qualitative and emancipatory social science. Third, as we have read in the last unit, post-modernist deconstruct the very foundation of society or science. No wonder for post-modernist positivism loses its cognitive power and legitimacy. And in a way, the distinction between the objective science and subjective narrative gets eroded. Sociology becomes yet another narrative filled with biographies and life histories, and a known positivist or postmodern sociology does not look fundamentally different from the cultural studies. As we understand positivism emerged at a time when sociology was trying to establish itself as a science and positivism continues to have its appeal. But then with the passage of time with new experiences leading to disillusionment with the so-called neutrality of science and with new sensitivity to reflexivity and creativity. We see the growing critique of positivism. Positivism has indeed lost much of its appeal. We can understand this changing intellectual milieu if we concentrate on the following two specific critiques of positivism. The first one is reflexive sociology resisting methodological dualism. Reflexive sociology as put forward by Alvin W. Gardner is a meaningful alternative to positivism. Gardner, an American sociologist, wrote with a high degree of moral sensitivity and critiqued positivism. He warned us of the methodological dualism implicit in positivism. This dualism separates the knower from the known, subject from the object, fact from the value. Note solely that. It views that if the sociologist engages politically, emotionally and aesthetically with the object of his or her study, the scientific nature of the discipline would suffer. This cold objectivity, as Gardner would argue, is essentially an expression of alienation, that is, the alienation of the sociologist from his or her own self. It is 
like looking at sociological knowledge as just a piece of a moral technique. Gordnell, however, pleads for methodological monism and asserts that the separation between the knower and the known must be overcome because we cannot know others without knowing yourself. That is why self-reflexivity is absolutely important. To know others, a sociologist cannot simply study them, but must also listen to the confront himself or herself. Knowing is not an impersonal effort, but a personalized effort by whole embodied men. Reflexive sociology invites methodological monism and therefore alter the very meaning of knowledge. It does not remain merely a piece of information. Instead, it becomes an awareness. It generates self-awareness and new sensitivity. Reflexive sociology you would appreciate is heavily demanding, unlike positivist sociology in which you can remain neutral and apolitical. Reflexive sociology demands your moral commitment and ethical engagement. You cannot separate your life from your work, Gardner wrote. Take an example, suppose you wish to study the phenomena called slum culture. A way of doing it is of course a highly positivistic or technical research. You hire research assistants, send them to the particular slum with questionnaire and instruct them to distribute copies of it after random sampling. The data you gather get classified and quantified and you make your conclusions. These are the conclusions derived from hard facts. And never do you feel the need to engage yourself as a person with a slum. In other words, you, your dispassionate exercise is not different from the way a mathematician solves a puzzle or a scientist works in a lab. Now, Gardner reflexive sociology would oppose this kind of research. Instead, it would make you reflect on your own self and your politics and morality. Possibly, you are urban, upper class, English speaking and relatively privileged. What does it mean for you to understand the slum culture? Is not it the fact that their suffering cannot be separated from your privilege? Can you understand them without questioning this asymmetrical power? These questions born out of self-reflexivity would possibly create a new sociology, which far from objectifying the word, tries to create a new one. 
possibly new trends in sociological research emanating from the feminist and Dalit movements resemble this sort of reflexive sociology. Because of these research trends one sees not just technical objectivity but essentially a high degree of empathy and urge to understand suffering and a strive for an alternative paroxysm. The second one is agency and structure, process of structurization. Another significant critic of positivism has come from Antony Giddens, a leading sociologist of our time. Giddens' book, New Rules of Sociological Method, is a turning point. It is a text in which he studied the intellectual trajectory of the discipline and negotiated with the interpretative traditions and reflexed on a set of new rules. It does offer an alternative to positivistic or scientific sociology. Giddens is categorically about the fact that nature and human society are two different realms of inquiry. Nature is not a human production, but society is being perpetually created, renewed and altered by human agents. That is why there are limits to natural science methodology in science sociology. In sociology argues Giddon, those who still wait for a Newton are not only waiting for a train that would not arrive. They are in the wrong station altogether. This seems to be the reason why he began his intellectual conversation with phenomenological or ethnomethodological traditions. The way these interpretative sociologies seek to understand meanings that is the meanings that cons conscious human actors attach to the world and construct their knowledge of the everyday world they live in. Although for Giddens there are possibilities in these traditions, we need to see beyond because the meaning you and I attach to the world has to be situated in a social context and us metrical resources and capabilities often characterize this context. Take an example, imagine yourself as a student in the classroom. It is of course true that you are not a puppet silently performing the prescribed role. Instead you are a creative agent attaching meaning and creating an intersubjective world the classroom. But then there is a problem. Your agency or freedom is not unlimited because differential or unequal resources might characterize the classroom, teacher versus student. Even a simple site like classroom is in fact a site of conflict and contestation. 
Giddens therefore argues that interpretative sociology alone is not sufficient. It is equally important to be aware of the complex relationship between the agency and structure. This critical or creative engagement with methodological issues led him to put forward a set of rules which can be summarized in our next discussion. Now let us wind up the session and take rest. Thank you very much for engaging yourself in the self-learning podcast.